Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks the 25th anniversary of Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, which opened in movie theaters nationwide on May 2, 1997. I spoke to director Jay Roach when he came to DC to promote his Dalton Trumbo biopic Trumbo in 2015, but made sure to ask plenty of questions about Austin Powers and meet the parents. Thanks so much for joining us here. Oh no, it's really cool to be here. Thanks for the interest. Now, uh, before we dive into Trumbo, uh, we were just chit-chatting here a little bit about radio, and he was saying that, you know, that he got into editing and film and everything through working in radio. Let's go into that a little first. That's right. I was pre-law at Stanford, an econ major, and I started working at KZSU um, doing halftime shows, and but I evolved into public affairs. I ended up being public affairs uh, programming director for one year, nice. and started learning to edit uh, the, the reel-to-reel tape with razor blades and tape and uh, felt like telling a story by putting pieces together in different orders and that led to being interested in film. Got out of pre-law and applied to film school. <laughs> and then you were actually cutting together that film, except it was film and not audio, right? That's right. We ended up learning a lot of useless, obsolete skills on how to <laughs> chop up bits of celluloid and, and tape them together with a, a little uh, guillotine machine. Right. As we speak into the iPhone at the moment. Yeah, I mean, when I look at my <laughs> my sons are just now getting into filmmaking a little bit, uh, and my youngest son, whose birthday is today, happy birthday, Sam, if there's no way you'd be listening to this, but... Happy birthday, Sam. You never know. <laughs> you never know. He's our biggest fan. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the ability to sit and finesse things, uh, you know, on Avids and Final Cut Pro, uh, it's just so enviable, you know, because it's... And it's also democratizing, you know, which kind of can... Yeah. get into a, a discussion of a story like ours like imagine if everyone had access to to filmmaking that way or or podcasts using your iPhone or being able to tweet and and you know social media to take on any kind of oppressive you know uh system that happens all the time now but in those days someone like Hedda Hopper could right. rule the world in a way or at least that her little part of the world by her 32 million readers yeah. Uh, by just saying what she wanted to say with very little pushback. You know, there wasn't someone to instantly tweet back at her. So I wonder if... Sort of what she said went in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. And that's how the the, uh, gossip columnists functioned back then, Walter Winchell, Luella Parsons. uh, Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, just an interesting difference. There are a lot of similarities, unfortunately, too, with how the the political system still suffers from a, a lot of the same dysfunction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you've, um, you know, let's, I guess, since you, we, you mentioned Hedda Hopper, let's dive yeah. into Trumbo yeah. a little bit. Um, 
I saw it, I guess, last week, and it's mm-hmm. just fascinating. But awesome. I, I'm a little biased in that regard because I love movies about you know that period of Hollywood I and all think that. More kind of people stuff, love them than we think. I mean, it, right. it has become a, a kind of buzzkill in Hollywood to say oh, it's got a little political element to it. Like, right. what? Well, okay, good. Thanks. See you next year. Yeah. Uh, I think the more I talk to people about films, the more they wish there were good political storytelling. Yeah. You know, there was good political storytelling like there had been in the seventies. Uh, something like 12 million people saw Game Change yeah. within the first month, you know, and if that was a Hollywood movie, you know, probably wouldn't have been as big, but still it would have been a pretty hefty, so I, I was very, only a million saw a recount, so you, you, right. you know, that was humbling, but um, <laughs> I would say that there, I would hope, you know, I can just be naively optimistic that, that there's a, a bigger audience for stories, and it's not political political like in quotes it's it's just that it's a good story that has a national scope you know a a scope that's about how how then shall our nation run and but the local story is a man and his family trying to survive this horrible situation yeah did you um what sort of what fascinated you because you'd obviously done game change and recount you know Mm -hmm. other political things but what sort of made you want to dive into the mccarthyism uh blacklist era Mm -hmm. when i was watching it i was thinking of martin ritt right the front or something like that you know zero muscle jumps out the window it's all you remember the tragedy but um were you a fan of of though that of a movie like in that sort of genre i had a personal connection when i was a USC Film School, my directing teacher was Edward Dimitrick. Oh, wow. He was one of the Hollywood Ten. He was the only non-writer of the Hollywood Ten. So that's the and connection. That's, that was part of it. I, it was just, I knew a little about it. John McNamara, our great screenwriter, and one has to repeatedly mention him because he's the one who spotted the power of this story about a screenwriter. Um, it took a screenwriter to recognize it, and he worked on it for many years before he brought it to me. I just happened to coincidentally, he had studied with some of the blacklisted screenwriters, and I had studied with the blacklisted director. There's only ten of them, and we each studied with wow. with uh, members of the... So it, I, I knew enough about it. I, the, the sad part about it was that his story was a cautionary tale, and which kind of made it more compelling to me. He didn't name names at first, but he came out of prison and did name names mm-hmm. to rehabilitate his career, right. succeeded in rehabilitating him, went on to direct Kane Mutiny, which I think right. was either nominated or won an Academy Award, and... Uh, you know, but he was tortured by that, by some of what went on, and and never entirely forgiven by his yeah. peers in Hollywood. So I was like, I, he, there was a little bit of a tragic quality to to him uh, that yeah. always stuck in my mind. Wow. And you mentioned naming names and sort of that. Um, you know, certain people come across certain really famous stars that we all look back at the golden age. Some of them come across better than others. Let's you know, mm-hmm. may, you know, Kirk Douglas comes across a yeah. little better, and then maybe you know, Hedda Hopper, and what do we say? Maybe John Wayne and Edward G. Robinson, who mm-hmm. names names. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you sort of juggle that? Because you know, a lot of people sort of have these myths of of their favorite movie stars. Mm-hmm. It, do you sort of just take the line sort of in the end, how how it's sort of, how Cranston says in the end, it's almost like a healing, you know, we were all sort of victims yeah. here. Is that how you kind well, of straddle that? Or? I wish it was that simple. A lot of, he, so, so, so it was a situation where these writers, and what, just to get back to your earlier question and then connect to this one. Yeah. Dalton Trumbo was one of the most talented screenwriters of his day and Ever. most highly paid, you know. Well, you know, there are a lot of, there have been probably movies that are held in higher regard than some of his, but imagine what he could have written in those 13 years that he was forbidden from, for writing from studi- for studios. The only way he got to write, and this is what made the story compelling, is he wrote in the black market uh, with other writers, and 
for producers, schlock producers like Frank King. Right. John Goodman. And, yeah. and, and uh, who's played by John Goodman, who's fantastic and actually really funny in the story. <laughs> um, and he somehow is, figures out a way to keep writing and uh, under pseudonyms, under false, right. you know, other fronts or, or, or other people or made up names. So he goes and wins two Academy Awards, one for Frank King's company yeah. called The Brave One, a movie called The Brave One, and one uh, writes Roman Holiday, Audrey Hepburn's first movie with Gregory yeah. Peck, this beautiful uh, fairy tale story, then writes Spartacus, right, and Exodus, <laughs> yeah. all while being blacklisted. Yeah. So he uses, he uses the situation, or he, or, he, or he survives the situation and copes with it by just writing, and he writes his way out of both literal jail and figurative movie jail yeah. to, to do this great work. So I was like, how did, that's a story. That's an un American underdog story who takes on this giant, you know, evil system and, and kind of wins, but kind of lost something really tragic, which was 13 years of the opportunity to write who knows what he would have written. Right. If we all been, lost yeah, those 13. We lost, the yeah. civilization lost out on, on our artists' yeah. output. Many, many hundreds of artists, and if you fold in academia and sure. all the other places where McCarthy, you know, McCarthy came on a little later. This was pre-McCarthy's yeah. era when, when Hedda Hopper was, and, 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 and so to get back to, to the difference between someone like John Wayne and someone like Kirk Douglas, despite Dalton Trumbo saying that there were no heroes and, and no villains, there were people who made choices that were a little more noble than other people. Right. It's on a continuum. It's definitely not black and white. There's the far extreme were people like Hedda who believed that once a commie, always a commie. She got Charlie Chaplin deported, you know, and said yeah. on her, practically on her deathbed, just don't let Charlie Chaplin back. Yeah. And then you had people all the way down to Trumbo's uh, situation who had a choice to take the risk to lose their career. Some people lost their families, their homes. He lost his home. Uh, to stand up for something, a, a principle that you should you should be allowed to join any political organization, you know, uh, because the Constitution protects people who join even unpopular organizations as long as they're not literally, uh, you know, part of a, a, a plot. But they couldn't even expose a plot. They they had all those hours of testimony. There was no evidence whatsoever that these particular men, unlike others in the Communist Party had anything to do with anything other than just writing great stuff, fighting for unions, fighting against fascism, yes, yeah. and unified probably naively by the you know joining the communist party. But none of them were good communists. Trumpo was a uh, Trumpo was constantly attacking, you know, any uh, the, the you know criticizing the communist party and also was busy making, you know, a ton of money. So he was right. a hypocrite. Right. They didn't he was a bad communist if he was a communist. Right. And that's why we had Louis C.K. playing the far left version to give to bust him for all that. Right, right. No, yeah. and that's awesome. Um, I guess let's go into doing go into Brian. Where had you had did you was it was this an idea where you came to the material first, or did Brian come to it first, or how how did he get cast as Don Trumbo? The screenwriter had worked for years on the project and and had done a, a a ton of great work and then I was it was brought to me by Michael London our great producer and and I worked with the screenwriter on it for a couple more years and we, you know, found new things. Hedda Hopper came, became a bigger part of the story. We got to know the daughters of Trumbo, Mitzi and Nikki Trumbo, who added a right. tremendous amount of of authenticity, yeah. to details, specific uh, moments of, you know. Uh, difficulty in their home and uh and we just kept doing it and then was you know we 
the financiers that we talked to wanted bigger names, but when Cranston's name come up, you know, I just said, I don't, I don't want to do it unless it's him, you know, and yeah. we hung in and uh, found a really cool company to finance it, and Brian, uh, there's a lot of overlap, I think, with Trumbo and Cranston, because Brian's so passionate and uh, so driven, and, and uh, you know, he can be kind of larger than life, too, he's so charismatic, you know, and look at the range from Malcolm in the Middle to Breaking Bad. To Seinfeld. To, to, yes, uh, oh, yeah, all those character roles he yeah, played, yeah. Argo. You know, yeah, yeah, Private you know, Ryan he was in, too, by yeah, the way. That's yeah, that's right, of yeah. course. Lots of stuff. Um, and so I, uh, I just thought, I need that range to make this character relatable because he's a communist he's rich uh he, no one's he, gonna go a, for this if we a, don't he's get the 40s yeah. and he's a writer right. like these are all the things and it's in a political story these are the right. probably the five least commercial <laughs> right. uh, things you could ever right. want to try and so i just thought you got to have someone as good as cranston and same for all the other characters you had to have someone as good as helen mirren playing had a you had to have someone good as stuhlbarg playing edward g robinson yeah. Uh, John Goodman as Frank King is just mind-blowingly good and, as I say, funny. And and Louis C.K. as this composite of the other Hollywood Ten writers, you know, as the very dark, dry, uh, you know, unhealthy man, ultimately, uh, who also happens to be hilarious as he's trashing Trumbo. Yeah. I lo- and I love the little stuff you sneak in there, like break in, in, in Goodman's office, how they break the gun crazy poster. Like, yeah. oh, you makes trash, except this movie, we're yeah, going to punch that everyone holds up. Yeah. Yeah. So it, there's some cool stuff you got going I on. I love there. that he also says, you know, go ahead, shut me down. I'll just go hire winos and hookers to be my crew. And, uh, and uh, you know, if you do whatever you want in the press, because nobody who, who sees my movie can read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, he embraced his schlockiness. Yeah. And then again, he goes on and helps these guys, these great screenwriters who he's paying nothing. He exploited right. the crap out of them. Right. But he was, he let them work and he didn't care if they were blacklisted yeah. and he gets Brave One written and helps uh, contribute to Trumbo emerging yeah. to do all these other great films. You're talking about, there's this interesting sort of um, paradox with this schlocky stuff versus the, you know, the higher yeah. sprout stuff that he yeah. wins Oscars for. But talk about your, your career is almost <laughs> in that, you know, you, how do you, in terms of, you know, your t- tell me how comedy is also a serious yeah. art. Like, I don't you think really enough know, people appreciate you know, it. I don't, you know, you know, I wouldn't uh, agree that there's any schlock in Austin, but I did work for Roger Corman for a little while after film school shooting, you know, uh, I remember I was a cameraman and I sh- would shoot yeah. like a stripper's pillow fight, you know, with feathers, <laughs> and, and then right, it was right. involved in some horror film. I was yeah. like, oh, I got, I know schlock. Yeah. But, I, but tell me how comedy is more of a yeah. serious, you know, I don't think enough people give it a credit for well, Austin Powers and Meet the Parents are genius. I, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. Um, I, I don't, um, you know, I, I didn't intend to do comedy. I, I mostly wrote in, in film school, I did some comedy, but I mostly wrote when I came out in serious stuff and uh, science fiction and, uh, family drama. I mean, I, I was a writer and made a living in that world where you develop things that never get made. Right. But then when Mike Myers and I met, somehow I connected back to my older roots of Monty Python and Woody Allen, and uh, he said, oh, you should do this movie. And then I, I got on a treadmill in a way, but a very okay. great, hilarious, fun <laughs> treadmill that I just you know kept doing those films. Yeah. And uh, when I had mentioned to Sidney Pollack once that I was really interested in doing a, and he was going to do recount, and then he got sick and couldn't, yeah. and uh, he actually died um, yeah. 
just a little while after the film opened on HBO. This but is he, Tootsie and oh, um, the way we were, all this stuff. Yeah, uh, Jeremiah Johnson yeah. and uh, Out of Africa. There's a bunch oh, yeah, of movies. Yeah, 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 a bunch of movies. Anyway, just for the record, that's Sidney Bosch. He was uh, an incredible director, and and he said, "Oh, you got. I need some help. I need someone to take over this film." And he hadn't really got to do much on it yet, yeah. so I had to start from scratch. But it was eight weeks of. You know, there was a reason why I was the only person sort of eager enough to take it on. There was right. no prep time yeah. and no. But it was an opportunity of a lifetime to get back into doing stories about serious topics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just love this. Again, I love the story of the man, Ron Klain, who had helped Gore fight the, the recount battle. I love mm-hmm. the story of Steve Schmidt, the guy who had chosen yeah. Sarah Palin and then had to figure out how to... Woody Harrelson in the movie. Yeah, yeah Woody yeah. Harrelson in that movie. And it was Ke- uh, uh, yeah. um, uh, Kevin Spacey who played... Uh, Ron Klain yeah. and the other one. It was this. It's the story about the individual, you yeah. know. But the but the great thing about those stories is there's this larger stakes, and yeah. I think that's classic storytelling. The way those yeah. screenplays came at me. Uh, so I'm, you know, I I'm gonna keep doing all types of stories. I'm actually interested in doing thrillers now. Uh, nice. Maybe maybe it'll be a political thriller, Love but it. maybe it won't have anything to do with politics. Love I don't know. It. Speaking of that semi political thriller genre. Um, one of your former co-stars is is directing Spotlight coming out the same day know, in DC as Trumbo. I know. Tom McCarthy's yeah. a, he's not only was Dr. Bob and Meet the Parents the <laughs> the rival son-in-law. He um, he is a great guy and yeah. made Station Agent the Visitor yeah. and uh, I cannot wait to see Spotlight. I haven't seen it yet but uh, it's fantastic. I just am cursing the universe for having us open on the same weekend cuz I you know I I I was voting for his film, you know, like right. I really, yeah, 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 yeah. I, and I, we came out uh, at the same time, but it, I, it sounds like an amazing film and I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm happy on the one hand that there's so many great films out this fall, yeah. but it's, you know, it's kind of like, wow, there's a lot of people You're have a lot of choices, yeah. but no, I always say if you, if you see, uh, you know, I said last weekend, if you see one movie this, this weekend, see uh, Spotlight, if, if two, see, you know, Spectre, because you just have to probably... <laughs> And if those are sold out, come and see right. Trumbo, because yeah, it's yeah. a really cool film. So you I hope mean, people uh, track it down. Cranston's amazing in yeah. the film, and so is Helen Mirren it's and John great. Goodman. They're really incredible. I think it's a good, It's actually yeah. a really entertaining yeah. experience. It's not just uh, good for you. Yeah, it. even if you're not <laughs> Hollywood, geeking out on Hollywood history like us, I'm telling you, you you got to see it. You'll really enjoy it. You, oh, men- you. you mentioned Spectre. Um, talk about how your Austin Powers sort of... It almost like made it into this. It's a spoof, obviously, of of the great heights of a Mel Brooks or something, uh-huh. but or Leslie Nielsen or whatever. But it, it's also no, seriously, and but it's but it's almost helped the Bond myth, you know, achieve mythic status even more, you know. Uh, yeah, one. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we we really weren't trying to do a Bond myth anyway. In fact, I got the job. It was my first film, the first Austin by saying I w- I would love to encourage you guys to add some other elements into it Richard Lester movies you know right. the Beals movies um, yeah. which Mike was on to too but but I brought in things like uh, these Italian heist movies and yeah. uh, the 10th victim with Ursula Anderson <laughs> and uh, Mitch, uh, Marcello Mastriani who there were films that had a, a funny <laughs> pop art vibe to yeah. them you know like that like Warhol turned into right. comedy almost yeah. and I conv- I tried to convince them that style can be funny it's not just you know right. a lot of hollywood movies at the time particularly movies that were trying to make you know a skit into a larger thing would sure. just be kind of brightly lit right. for for a right. reason you couldn't understand or just right. i don't know so i thought try to make it have a have a a, a voice a vision that's it extols the the color of the joy of austin powers like yeah. his, his character uh 
ex expanded and manifested in color and dance and movement and and big set pieces. I was really pitching for big old, uh, you know, Busby Berkeley style, Buster Keaton level physical comedy. Yeah. And Mike really loved that, and um, and that's, you know, I think that's why how we were able to distinguish it. But it it was some Bond and some not. And then right. of course Doctor Evil is almost pure Bond mixed with Lauren Michaels. So <laughs> and so now I heard recently that Spectre has an element of the the brother the two brothers reveal thing. And I was like, oh, that's I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, want to give it away. Give anything away, but uh, <laughs> that sounds fascinating. That there might be some. Uh, we might have inspired something there. How did you how did you get him to do cuz actually we just had interviewed Eddie Murphy he got this award at the Kennedy Center but how did you work with Mike to do all those different parts I mean you know him Are you yeah, directing yeah, him differently in no, each one? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. You'd come at each character just as you would with an actor just playing yeah. each individually but when he was playing Dr. Evil I've never seen anything like the level of channeling some other spirit that wasn't Mike was Mike Myers in real life is a little closer to Austin. Right. As Doctor Evil, he became something else. It was a little <laughs> Lorne Michaels, so he might have been channeling, you know, his mentor Lorne. Right. But he became so um, lucid and fluent in a language that wasn't really Mike. It was trippy to watch, and he we had we had many many uh, hours really of just of just improvs that Dr. Evil would go yeah. off talking about the crazy details of his <laughs> life. And the first one, that long therapy session where he's talking about Summer Zang Rangoon, luge lessons, yeah, yeah. beaten with, in a burlap bag, you know, all yeah. that stuff. My he, father would make outrageous claims like he invented the question yeah, exactly. mark. I'm glad you remember oh, that oh, oh my God. You everybody really does. Film. Everybody. And, uh, you know, uh, it just was, <laughs> it just was, uh, it was so different from, from yeah. directing. And I remember when he one time was in the scene with with um, uh, Seth Green and they started uh, shushing each other, you know, and that we I had shot the whole Zip one side, and, sh yeah. and the first one it was just, you know, and every time he started talking, he goes, and he was doing that off camera. It wasn't part of the script, yeah. so I had shot the whole half of the scene, and he started he and Seth started doing it, but just because he was channeling this other presence. I said, this is too good, and I made them, we went a half day behind, I said, we've got to turn around and shoot it now, because it's working so well, yeah. and so, I, I don't know, I, with, with, with Austin, we would focus, we would talk a little more about, you know, we had to kind of work a little harder, if you will, yeah. with Dr. Evil, it was like, it, I just made sure the cameras had enough film, and we were actually shooting film, you know, yeah. at the time. And uh, that's that was that was really magical. It's it's I think it, I mean, it it'll be around forever. Everyone loves it. You know, it. it's so funny. I I've done polls at college. So how many of you haven't seen it? And this is not to I, because I'm actually interested sure. in the marketing of how that movie right. got out because it didn't get seen in the first right. uh, theatrical release that much. It made a little bit, but not a huge right. amount. Then it got big on video, right. and it, it's still in the red. It, it, accounting wise really? the first Austin Powers and I'm always like I really I, I haven't met anybody yeah. very many people haven't seen that first one on tape like didn't Isn't they crazy? didn't they make some money on yeah. it it was only cost 16 million dollars to make right. it was a relatively low budget movie so ask have your friends ask New Line what, what happened we'll to ask. I'm sure the sequels made it back <laughs> well I want to wrap it back around to Trumbo in the end but oh, before yeah. I get there before we leave the comedy is there one scene in Meet the Parents that makes you just lose it even after oh, seeing it's, it there's a, no question it's the scene uh, you know in the dinner when when there's sitting around uh, talking about Greg Fokker, you know, having milked a cat, and then uh, <laughs> Did Dr. you get the mirror to do the, or did no, Ben, ben to do did it? That. Yeah. Ben, ben did the little, uh, the little Hand. miming of the cat nipple <laughs> squeezing, 
and De Niro saying, you know, I have nipples. Can you know? Can you milk me? And yeah. and then leading up to the to the climax of that scene, and it was a thirty minute setup that led to that the champagne cork knocking that urn with the ashes. Yeah. Thirty minutes. The whole setup of the first act is just to set up that one giant yeah. explosion. And uh, it was there. You know, when you sit in an audience and you hear them react to that, you you can understand why comedians and film directors get so addicted to the to the out of body thing that somehow yeah. happens where I always like it when the audience is losing their minds enough that they're just you know <laughs> thrashing themselves and rocking in the chair and I've only you know I got to see that once in Borat which I produced uh, right. on the during the naked fight I saw people lose their uh, minds it was very nice that yeah was, uh, very yeah. nice that was a great experience in, in comedy as well awesome well maybe, maybe this is how we bring it back to yeah. Trumbo yeah. so um, you know you got um, you know you have someone like De Niro and Meet the Parents who has such a serious, but then you find the comedic sign in him. And now you have someone like Cranston who's done Seinfeld and Malcolm in the yeah. Middle, and then but then can go to Breaking Bad yeah, and yeah, Trumbo. Yeah. And there's, you know, just talk about how do you how do you sort of how are they actually not that different from each other? Because as a director, you've done them both. So how yeah. does how does sort of the same principles yeah. apply? I guess. Well, there's comedy in Trumbo partly because Trumbo himself, though was. He was a very, very serious man with very serious battles to fight, including for, for freedom and civil rights, free speech. He also was a witty person, and, uh, and he was surrounded by wits. The guys, the other Hollywood Ten, when he died, when Trumbo died, he was older than the rest of them. And so they all came to his funeral and just started trashing the crap out of him. It turned into a roast in a really funny way. They loved him dearly, right. but they would still to hurl insults and it actually turned into like a comedy central roast right <laughs> so they're that funny so that's why you cast Louis C.K. Mm -hmm. and John Goodman and once you yeah. do that right. once you have these guys with that capability the scene the funniest scene in a very dark movie a very painful I have to emphasize it's yeah. obviously a very serious movie with stakes are as big yeah, as it gets yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in a scene where where John Goodman takes on this union guy who's threatening to shut him down, you know, and is saying, you know, I'll just, like, everything we're talking about, just, yeah. uh, uh, you try to shut me down, you know. I, that scene, I knew how to shoot that because it was physical comedy right. with a great comic performer yeah. in John Goodman taking on a great foil in Dan Bechtel who plays, mm -hmm. he's a great, you know, people who know yeah. Veep, have known for Veep, yeah. uh, playing that, that uh, union leader. And I... You know, comedy is comedy, and and the audience needed a break then from all the seriousness. And I think there are a number of other moments where there's the absurdity and irony kicks in, and we actually get you know a surprising amount of of verbal you know where you can hear how a drama is playing. You mm -hmm. sometimes can hear oh they're actually paying attention because now they're laughing at the funny part, so they must have got the serious parts too. So I I think I'm lucky that I had training in comedy, and comedy also prepares you for chaos because sometimes the actors come up with something better than right. like I was just describing with Dr. Evil and you have to just go with it and so, this was a great screenplay but there were times especially with Louis C.K. when he would come up with something the happy know, accident yeah, yeah happy accident or do you, do you have to say everything like it's going to be chiseled into a rock That's or, or when he says oh just shut up like the, I, the way he busts Trumbo for being a hypocrite and a blowhard and right. a you know is so great and yeah. 
I knew enough from doing comedy that you never say, no, just stick to the script, please. Just do the lines. The lines are fine. You don't need to add new things. I would right. never say that. Right. And I like the chaos when someone throws it. It's not chiseled, in. like yeah, you said. Yeah. Yeah. Even your approach yeah. can't be chiseled. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I, I'm definitely uh, flexible enough to find the entertainment value based on my, my training in comedy. Awesome. Well, I know you got, what, fish and tomato soup coming up, yeah. so I don't want to <laughs> yeah. keep you away, but yeah, so we'll make it the last question. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, well, I mean, what do you want people to, to take away from this movie, other than the entertaining ride that we're talking about and yeah. the flashbacks to their ho- Hollywood, you know? I, you know what I like taking out of is a, it's a message to writers or a, or a film, um, it's a film celebrating what writers are capable of, because storytelling maybe the answer you know politicians evidently are not going to stay focused enough on solutions but storytellers love to try to find what unites us you know and so he's a storyteller and and you know i I just i think anytime you can make a movie that uh, that's about storytelling and and hopefully told well enough as its own story that that other storytellers will look for ways to follow in the footsteps of a man like Trumbo and fight the fights if you have to, but mostly just stay focused on doing great work, and that's what wins out. Awesome. Well, this is great work. <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much, sir. Thank appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much. Thanks. Right. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Let that's me just good. make sure I save it. really good. Really good, actually. That was, uh, that's the, maybe the best interview I've done this whole trip. Right. See, I, I left it rolling. It. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.